Joshua chapter 7. And we want to hear what uh, George MacDonald calls some more of this heavenly good sense. If you're new to the Old Testament, the book of Joshua is the sixth book in the Bible. It follows the book of Deuteronomy. The uh, battle for Jericho is behind us. Chapter 7 describes the battle for little I. I was uh, a little town up in the central part of the land of Canaan. Uh, Very insignificant little town, a small enclave of Canaanites, small military force, left there to protect what was uh, then a little-used route into the interior of Canaan. But it was strategic for the Israelites' purposes because little I guarded the north-south route up and down the the central ridge of the land of Canaan. This uh, then was the next city that they had to conquer. But, we're told in the first paragraph of the chapter, the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. The word uh, for unfaithful here uh, has in mind some sort of covert unrighteousness, hidden wickedness. And uh, it had to do with the devoted things, that is, the forbidden things, the prohibited things. The uh, word here that's translated devoted is related to the Arab word harem. You know what a harem is. Uh, the uh, Harem is a place where Muslims kept their wives, still do today, as a matter of fact. And that place is forbidden to anyone else. That's the term that's used here. Uh, our word, pro- something that's prohibited, something that's forbidden fits. The Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the prohibited things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the pedigree of this man is given, and we're told that he violated the prohibition, specifically the one that's found in chapter 6, verse 17. The city and all that is in it, that is the city of Jericho, Uh, And everything in it is to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared. But keep away from the devoted things so that you you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring disaster on it. Keep that verse in mind because that forms the backdrop of this, uh, this passage. Disaster befell Israel because Achan partook of the devoted things. He looted, in other words. He took something that was not his. Uh, So the Lord's anger, we're told, uh, in verse 1, burned against Israel. And that uh, phrase forms the foundation for what follows. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out I. This had been their, uh, uh, their, their uh, procedure all along, to send spies into the land, to reconnoiter the territory, and then bring back reports to Joshua. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people have to go up against I. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men were there. It's a very small garrison, only a small cadre of Canaanites left there to protect the, uh, the pass. It's no big deal. Uh, we're talking about two or 3,000 people. Let's not worry all the people and send the entire army. 
So about 3,000 men went up. These, of course, were the elite, the choice, picked young men of, of Israel. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. This was, as far as we know, the only loss of life in the entire campaign, 36 of Israel's finest. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Uh, interesting, uh, interestingly enough, that phrase is used for the Canaanites prior to the, uh, to the conquest by Israel. Their hearts turned into, into water. And in this case, it's the Israelites who were routed. They were defeated at the gates of the city, driven down the, uh, the slopes of the mountain to the west of Jericho. Very precipitous, about a 3,000-foot drop down to the Jordan. They were chased down the wadi onto the, the Jordan River where they hid in the stone quarries, found uh, protection there. It was a disastrous defeat. Joshua was uh, confused and uh, critical of the Lord's performance. Verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes, which is a typical oriental uh, way of, of mourning, and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord. That is, he began to pray. The ark representing the presence of the Lord in Israel, and he remained there until evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. Again, another way of conveying uh, contrition, humility. And, and Joshua said, O oh, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only had we, we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan, how soon we, we forget. O oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this. They will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? In other words, it's your fault. You did it to us. You brought us over into this country to destroy us. You did it. So reminiscent of my uh, efforts to blame God for my uh, my my sin and my downfall. The Lord said to Joshua, "Stand up." Just this uh, terse uh, command: "Stand up." What are you doing on your face? This is not the time to pray. When uh, when there's an Achan in the camp, it calls for action, not prayer. Israel has sinned. It's not I. I'm not the cause of this disaster. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. Interesting play on words, a kind of pun that, that God uses on Joshua's phrase. Uh, you brought us over into this land to destroy us. Uh, the word that's translated bring over is the same word that the Lord uses in verse 11. No, no. You, you have crossed over the boundary. In other words, you violated the covenant. Uh, the Israelites were called Hebrews, we think, because, uh, and that, by the way, was, uh, was a, uh, a term that was used by their enemies to describe them, because they came over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. The word for come over is the word aver, from which Hebrew comes. And that's the word that, that the Lord uses. Joshua says, you brought us over to kill us. God says, no, the problem is that you have trespassed the covenant. You've, you've crossed the boundaries that I established for you. They, that is Israel, has taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. 
That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. See, it's not my fault, it's yours. And that's why this defeat has, has, has come. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I'll not be with you anymore. That is, in terms of the conquest. He had promised that he would never leave or forsake his people. He had promised that he would be their God and they would be his people. But in terms of the conquest and the inheritance that was legitimately theirs, God would not uh, not lead them into battle unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. In other words, the thing devoted to destruction. You cannot stand against uh, your enemies until you remove it. In other words, this is the way to live in the land. This is the way to continue the conquest. This is the way to be victorious. You have to deal with, with, with sin. One of the Psalms reads, uh, if we regard iniquity in our heart, he will not hear us. God will not hear us. Now, the Psalm is not talking about, uh, about occasional sin or those sins that, uh, that entrap us and into which we fall. He, and, and sins from which we uh, deliver ourselves by, by confession. We judge the sin and put it away. He's rather talking about persistent sin. When God speaks to us about an issue in our life and we persist in it, we refuse to deal with it, the psalm says if we regard iniquity in our heart, God will not hear us. He's still with us, nudging us and wooing us and urging us and reminding us and working with us. But in terms of conquest, we, we are, we're defeated people. We can't, uh, we can't win over sin. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. So, in the morning, present yourself tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward. Clan by clan, the clan that the Lord takes shall come forward. Family by family, and the family that the Lord takes shall, uh, that the Lord takes shall come forward. Man by man. The word that's translated take all the way through this paragraph is the word captured or caught, seized. He who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, verse 15, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. As Hebrews puts it, our God is a consuming fire. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward, and he took the Zerahites. We don't know how this was done, perhaps by Lot. The, the New American Standard Bible assumes that it was by Lot. They cast Lot as tribe by tribe came by, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And then of the clans of Judah, he took the Zerahites, that is the descendants of Zerahite, and is the or, or descendants of Zerah. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken, Zimri's family. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. This must have taken all day, and this man held out to the very end. At any point, I believe, if he had stepped forward and admitted that he was the culprit, he was the one who did it, then he could have been restored, but he would not do it. He was holding out to the end. 
Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, as the New International Version uh, translates in the footnote. Take a solemn charge to tell the truth. And, and give the God of Israel praise. In other words, confess your sin to him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. It sounds very much like a father speaking to a wayward son. Achan replied, it's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. During the hand-to-hand fighting for the conquest of Jericho, uh, this man who apparently was one of the soldiers made his way into a house and he saw a a tongue of gold, a little wedge of of gold, which in today's uh, market would be worth about six or seven thousand dollars. And uh, he saw a, a silver implement of some sort, which would be worth less than $1,000 in today's dollar. And a, a beautiful Babylonian garment, which would be like a $400 Brooks Brothers suit. And, uh, you know, this was the latest thing in haberdashery. And, and he thought, you know, I'll be a, a VIP if I start wearing this. And so he, uh, he, he looted the house and he, just a few things. It, wouldn't, it was no big thing, but he hid it. So he knew, he knew, he hid it, he covered it up. It's covert. He didn't want to bring it out in the open and admit it. He hid it. Uh, this, uh, we don't have time to talk about it, but this, uh, this paragraph uh, gives us an interesting insight into the psychology of sin, the way it works. Aiken said he saw in the plunder a beautiful robe. That's always where sin begins. We see something that, that's, that's enticing, it's attractive, looks good. And then we want it. He coveted it. And then he took it. Now, he hadn't sinned until he, until he acted upon his, uh, his desire. As James puts it, desire has to conceive and give birth. And when it gives birth, it gives birth not to what we think, which is joy, but rather to death. And that's exactly what happened in this, uh, in this instance. So Joshua sent the messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there, there it was, there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. So the whole thing came out into the open. Achan's sin had found him out. He thought he could hide it. No one would know, but God saw. One of the interesting things about this story is the way the story unfolds, because we see the culprit before anybody else does. You remember the old Columbo series? Uh, you always saw the crime first, and you know who, uh, who done it. You, you, you saw the perpetrator, as they say, and, and, uh, and then Columbo sort of bumbles his way through, and he finally discovers, follows the clues, and he discovers who it is. The storyteller unfolds the story somewhat in the same way. We know who the culprit is from the very beginning, and so did God. That's the point. God saw. Achan could not hide the deed. No one else knew, but God saw it. And God brought it out into the open. It's a vivid, vivid illustration of the fact that our sin will always, sooner or later, find us out. It may take years, but sooner or later, it'll come out into the open. Then Joshua 
together with all Israel. And believe me, there, there, were, there was no glee in this. I detect a strong current of sadness and mourning. Achan may have been a very popular figure in, in the body of, of Israel. He certainly must have been one of their elite troops. and uh, There was no joy in this. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his son and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why, why have you brought this disaster upon us? The Lord will, will bring disaster on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Now, I should point out at, at, at this juncture that the, the, the text makes it fairly clear they did not kill his family. They were simply observers. The Old Testament law prohibited the execution of children for the sins of their fathers, and God would not act contrary to his, to his own law unless they were implicated in the deed in some way. But the pronouns shift back and forth. They, uh, literally, the text says, they stoned him and they piled them into a pile and they burned them. That is the objects that, that, he, had, that he had collected and all of, all of his things. So as far as, as I understand the text, we're not, we're not being led to believe that the children suffered for the sins of the father. It was uh, Achan who was stoned and and all of his uh, his loot. And over Achan, they, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor, or destruction, or disaster. It's the word that's translated disaster up in, in verse 25. Therefore, the place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. This is a tough passage. I haven't been particularly looking forward to this passage. I love to talk about Jericho, and I love to talk about Rahab, because there's such a wonderful display of the, of the grace of God. But here's another side of God. This is the other side of God that we also have to talk about, the fact that, that God is a holy God and that, that he, he really cannot partake in our, in our sin in any sense. There are several observations I'd like to make about the passage, and I hope you'll stick with me all the way through. Some people may tune out at this point because this sounds like one of those passages in the Old Testament which is very unchristian, sub-Christian. It, it shouldn't, you know, it's not the sort of thing that, it, that New Testament believers would take seriously. But I, I hope I can show you in the course of the message that this is a principle that the principle that's delineated here is one that runs all the way through the Bible. Three observations I'd like to make about this text. The first is that, that sin is sin. Sin is, is wrong. Sin is evil. And that there is such a thing as sin. Now that's very much counterculture today because people don't, they don't, they don't want to think in terms of absolutes. Or that something is absolutely wrong. In fact, the only absolute that some people have is that there are no absolutes. We, I, I was uh, up uh, near Riggins with a friend of mine this, this past week who is, uh, used to be an outfitter up there. He lives on the river. And David Melhoff and I were with him on Thursday. And he's something of a philosopher. And, 
And uh, he said uh, in the course of one of our discussions, uh, he said, you know, I've been watching a little television lately, and I'm, I'm getting the impression that the only moral absolute is tolerance. It's very perceptive. That, that's what people believe in today. You know, don't, don't fence me in. Give me room, lots of room. Give me space. Don't tell me what to do. My life is mine to live as I please. Basically, there are no absolutes. As long as I don't infringe on your rights, as long as I don't step on your toes, then just let me be. Don't tell me that something is sinful and, and wrong. No one knows anymore what qualifies for sin. I uh, saw a cartoon recently. A, a wife of a clergyman was talking to a, a woman friend, and, and she says to her about her clergyman husband, John still believes in sin. He just doesn't know anymore what qualifies. And that's our world. That's our world. But if we're Christians, if we're willing to take our Lord's assessment of Scripture, we can know what qualifies. As sin. You see, our Lord took the scriptures very, very seriously. Therefore, if we're going to call him Lord, we cannot have any lesser view of scripture than he did. He quoted scripture to, to, to the evil one, to Satan. And he refused to act in certain ways because God had spoken. Sin is sin. Therefore, as Christians, we can say without any question. That adultery is sin. That drunkenness is sin. That um, divorce under unbiblical circumstances, under unbiblical conditions, is sin. Lying is a sin. Stealing is a sin. Gossip is a sin. We don't have to apologize for that. Because that's the view of reality that our Lord himself assumed. And we are not at liberty to take any lesser view. Let, let, me, let me give you an example. Will you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4? I don't know that you need to be told this again, but, but here's an illustration of, of the way the, the Bible, uh, the approach that the Bible takes to ungodly behavior. Uh, chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, let me begin reading with verse... Uh, you, however, did not come to know Christ this way, that is, as those who have given themselves over to sensuality and, and impurity and what he calls the continual lust for more, that is, greed. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. In other words, what Jesus taught us to believe. You were, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to have a new way of looking at, at, at reality, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, the new self is the true self. This is reality. This is the hard stuff up, up against which we just keep banging our heads. This is truth. Verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbors, for, for we're all members of one body. It's a sin to lie. Do you understand that? It's a sin to, to falsify 
our expense accounts. It's a sin to, for us to cheat the IRS. It's a sin for us to deceive our wives or our children. Lying is a sin. The Bible doesn't make a distinction between white lies and, and black lies. Lying is lying. Sin is sin. And that's why Paul says if you've put on the new man, you're going to put off the old self, and you're not going to lie anymore. You're not going to exaggerate. Boy, you know, I, I, I know. I, I understand. I struggle with that, the tendency to exaggerate just a little bit. Make the story a little bit better. And all of you know what that's like. But Paul says, one of our Lord's apostles who speaks with the same authority as our Lord, put off falsehood, speak truthfully. Verse 26, in your anger do not sin, do not, not, not let the sun go down while you're still angry, do not give the devil a foothold. It's not a sin to be angry. Our Lord became very angry at wrong, and when someone else is being wronged, we should certainly get angry. But there's a difference between anger that flares up over injustice and resentment. That's what he's talking about. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't brood over injustices. Because if you do so, you'll give, give the devil an opportunity. I think that's why there's so much violence, so much domestic violence. And primarily that's why men become batterers, I think, is because they are angry men. And the reason they're angry is because they're all bummed out over the injustices that life hands to us. And they brood over those things and then they take it on their family. They hit their wives. They hit their children. Physical abuse is a sin. He says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. Don't, don't steal from your employer. Don't steal his time. Don't steal his goods. But you must work doing something useful. I didn't say that. The Apostle Paul said that. Who speaks with the same authority as our Lord. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. You know what he's talking about? He's referring to verbal abuse. He's talking about deriding your spouse, calling her names, ridiculing her in private or in public. The word that Paul uses for unwholesome here is the word for rotten. Don't say anything rotten about your spouse, about your children, about anyone. Verbal abuse is a sin. Rather, build them up, he says. Enrich their lives with your words. Encourage them. See, only what is helpful for building, building others up. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. In other words, all hate and revenge has to go if you have put on the new self. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as, as in Christ Jesus God forgave you. Can, you. can you forgive a child for the heartache that he or she has brought you? Can you forgive a child for the marriage that they contracted against your will? Can you forgive? Can you be kind and tender-hearted as, as our Lord was? Ooh, this gets too convicting. Sin is sin. And the world is saying there are no absolutes. And our Lord and the prophets and the apostles say sin is sin. Cannot be overlooked. Cannot be whitewashed. 
The second thing that I would like to say, going back now to our story in, in Joshua 7, is that sin is hazardous to your health. It certainly was to Aikens. Sin produces pain, produces tremendous pain, produces guilt. Now, there is true and false guilt. You understand that. And we have to distinguish between the two. False guilt is based upon feelings that we have when we violate some principle other than a biblical absolute, a biblical mandate. All of us struggle with that from time to time. There are certain things I was told as a child are sinful, and it's still hard for me to do them, even though I know today they're not sinful because the Bible doesn't prohibit them. And we need to distinguish that way. And when, when the Bible is clear, when it's unequivocal in its statements, when there's no misunderstanding, when we violate those commands of Scripture, we will feel guilty. That is true guilt. And we, and we should expect to feel guilt. It's very real. That's God's way of getting our attention. But see, again, uh, this is very much counterculture because if you point out unrighteousness to anyone, they'll say, don't lay a guilt trip on me. You're not. It's the sin that lays the guilt trips on us. It's real. That guilt is real. We ought to feel guilty when we violate a clear command. Always reminded uh, when we talk about guilt of the, the limerick, uh, there was a faith healer from Deal who said, although pain is not real, when I sit on a pen and it punctures my skin, I dislike what I fancy I feel. <laughs> when, you, when you sin, when you sit on a tack, you're going to feel pain. And you may anesthetize yourself with drugs or alcohol or Valium, but, but that's a very short-lived relief because sooner or later the pain is going to come back. And the only way to deal with the, with the pain is to get off the pen. That's what we have to say to people when, when they are living in sin and they are feeling guilt. We have to, we have to tell them, you know, your, your problem is you're sitting on a, on a pen. Get up. Get up. And you won't feel that pain anymore. That, that pain is very real. It's real for us. And then, of course, sin also causes pain for others, as it did the nation of Israel. Divorce always causes pain, tremendous pain for us, tremendous pain for our families. It's like ripping off a part of our body. Drunkenness always causes pain. It does for us. It does for our families. Now, I, I want to say something here, and I'm going to probably anger every professional counselor in the room. And I, and I know I'm taking a risk by saying this because it's very easy to be misunderstood. But I want to say it because I believe it seriously. That drunkenness is a sin. Because it is found in that list of sins that, that occur from time to time in Scripture, in Galatians 5, for example. Matthew 12 and other places. Now, understand what counselors are saying when they say alcoholism is a sickness. I understand that. I think there are some people that may be predisposed to alcoholism. But what has happened to them, I believe, is what happens to all of us when we engage ourselves in sin. We, we become the slave of sin. As Augustine put it, sin is the punishment for sin. And when we begin to sin, then God gives us over to sin, and we become enslaved by it. It masters us, and then we may need, we may have to have outside help in order to be delivered. We may need to go to a treatment center. 
And we should not feel guilt necessarily because we can confess the sin and we can step out of the guilt into health. But drunkenness is a sin. The Bible says so. And it causes enormous pain. And therefore, if, if you are an alcoholic and you know it, before someone does a, an intervention on you, you intervene yourself. You put yourself in treatment. Because what you're doing is destroying yourself and your family and your business and everyone around you. And you know it, despite the denial. You know it. That's the second thing that, that I don't even need to say it. You know that. Sin causes pain. Now, we're not talking, again, I want to say this because I want you to understand where I'm coming from. I'm not saying that the sins we fall into are the sins that ultimately defile us and create enormous amounts of pain. Sin can be dealt with. When we sin, even though we may be struggling to get out of the sin, even though it may be a habitual pattern that's, that's difficult to deal with, when we judge the sin, we have purity of heart, and as the as the... Beatitude says it's the pure in heart who seek God. We can walk on without guilt, and we can walk on with a sense of, of the intimacy and fellowship of God. It all depends upon the attitude of our heart. Even if we're struggling in the sin, we can enjoy fellowship with, with God. What we're talking about is sin that we will not judge, sin that we will not deal with, sin that we hide under the silver in our tent that we cover over. And we think no one sees, but God does. God does. And because he loves us, he will bring tremendous pain into our lives. He'll woo us, and he'll try to win us back, and he'll appeal to us, and he'll keep pace with us, and he'll never abandon us. But he will eventually let us have our way. He'll take his hands off of us and let us go. That's what Paul describes as his wrath, his redemptive wrath. And we will come to the end of ourselves. And it's that pain that will draw us back to God. So if you're experiencing the, the pain of your sin, the only, the only way back is through the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. By the way, did any of you see the, uh, the special that... Uh, uh, Peralta Rivera did last week on demon possession and that, uh, that wonderful young man who's been sentenced to die and the word of witness that he gave that Geraldo tried to shut down. I had to laugh. He, he tried to shut him off and the kid just would not be put off. He just said, there's only one way out of this mess and it's Jesus Christ. And, you know, they just clicked. The screen went dead. They, you know, they could listen to the, the, the high priest of the Temple of Set, and they could listen to Anton LaVey, and all the other garbage could be spewed out into your living room. But when the answer came, nobody wanted to hear it. At least Mr. Revol- uh, Rivera didn't want to hear it. And they cut him off, and that's what the world does. Because they do not want to hear that there is only one way out of the mess we have made for ourselves, and that's Jesus Christ. And so when you find yourself drowning in your sin. There's a hand extended to you, and it's the forgiveness, the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. It's back through the way of the cross and the redemption that he provides for us. No condemnation, Paul says, for those that are in Christ Jesus. I have a third point. The first point is that sin is sin. The second point is that sin is hazardous to your health. The third point is that God is not tolerant. 
Does that strike you as, as, as too strong a statement? That, that was Chris Riddell's statement. You can take that up with him. But he's right. He's absolutely right. God is not tolerant of sin. Very patient with sinners who are struggling. Loving and gracious with those of us that keep falling down and picking ourselves up and falling down. He never gives up on us. But he is very intolerant of sin. He is a consuming fire. And if we persist in sin, if we will not bring it out into the open and spread it out before God, he will let us go until we're enslaved in our sin. Let me ask you to look at one other other chapter. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians, please? Verse 5, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. You work your way through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then there's Romans, then there's Acts, then 1 Corinthians, chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans, a man has his father's wife. Oh, what a sad situation. This fellow apparently had seduced his stepmother. And the church was doing nothing about it. This is a church that had everything. Paul, opening chapters, says you're enriched in all things, in wisdom and in knowledge. They had the best of teachers. They, 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 they had qualified Bible teachers in the, in the group and prophets. They're proud of their church. Huge church, apparently. Rapidly growing. But here's a man that, that was living in sin with his, with his stepmother, and they weren't doing anything about it. They were tolerant, you see. Paul well, says, you're proud. You should rather be filled with grief. See, not, not pride, not, not self-righteousness, but with grief. You should, you, should be, you should be weeping over this man's sin. Shouldn't you have rather been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. And we read that and we say, oh my, that, you know, that couldn't be Jesus' words. That, you know, this is uptight, legalistic uh, old rabbi who's trying to, trying to deal with sin this way. And, and no. No, this is the same man that wrote Ephesians 4. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. He's not talking about someone who sins and fails and confesses it and, and is trying to get his life together. He's talking about someone who is, who is arrogant, who's living in sin and defending and protecting it and hiding it and, and does not want to respond in, in obedience. And, and Paul says to do this hard thing. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, in other words, when you gather as a congregation, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. In other words, if Paul the Apostle were standing here with us, and if our Lord Jesus were standing here with us, they would say precisely the same thing today. Hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. 
And, and a bit later, he says in this chapter, something even stronger, drive out this wicked man. Apparently, apparently, he wanted to continue to name the name of Christ and participate in the fellowship of the church. He wouldn't leave. Paul said, make him leave. Why? Well, Paul tells us why. So the flesh can be destroyed and the spirit saved. Now, what's he talking about? Well, it's this process that causes so much trouble. People always have a hard time with us. When, when we try to follow Matthew 18, as our Lord uh, described that process for us, Jesus said, if someone sins, and again, see, we know on the basis of Scripture what he's talking about, what sin is. If someone violates a clear-cut command of Scripture, then, then one person, go and, and talk to that person. The person who sees it, the friend who loves him enough to risk the relationship, who will come and put his arm around that person and say, I, I, I see you involved in this sin. I, this is extremely hazardous to your health. This is sin. It needs to be dealt with. You need to put it away. Can I help you? I'll meet with you. I'll do anything. I, I recognize my own proneness to fail. I recognize my own sin. I'm not sitting in judgment on you. I just come alongside as, a, as another weak brother who, who re- realizes that we can be stronger as we stand together, how can I help you? And then Jesus said, if, if he won't hear that person, then you, you bring two or three more, not to gang up on the person, on the sinner, but, but rather to, to let him know that there, this is felt by more than one or two. This is a serious matter. It needs to be confronted. And then... Jesus said, if, if, they, if he won't hear the two or three and assume that this is, you know, there are multiple appeals, it's not a one-time appeal, then you, then you announce it to the church. Why? So the whole church can go after the sinning brother or sister. So that, that not so they can point him out as the sinner and separate from him, but so they go after him or her. And we've seen this happen. We've done this rarely. I can only think of four times in the ten years I've been at Cole Community Church. And it is extremely painful. We've wept over these situations. We are not gleeful. And, and, and we've asked the congregation to go after this person and appeal to them. Draw them back because sin is injurious to your health. It will destroy you. And then the fourth step, which we have not ever taken here, but which... Paul enjoins upon us is that you finally cut off fellowship with them and they are out there in the open where Satan can have a field day where the flesh will be destroyed and and I'm sure you have seen this happen that when a person cuts themselves off themselves off from fellowship with the body of Christ they have no defenses and sin becomes their master and they go down and down and down until they come to their senses. That's the point of it all. It's so they can be reclaimed. It's not to put them in their place. It's not even necess- you know, primarily to purify the church. We, you know, these announcements don't come because we're saying to you, all right, if you do it, you're going to get the same kind of treatment. That's not our purpose. It's so we can win that brother or sister back into the fellowship and save them from a, from a fate worse than death. See how Paul puts it? So that the flesh will be destroyed and the spirit saved. George MacDonald says, All that is not beautiful in us, all that becomes 
that all that comes between us and our Lord must be destroyed. And our God is a consuming fire. May I read one other passage to you? You don't need to turn there. It's in Hosea if you want to look look at it later. Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. You know the story of Hosea. Hosea's wife was unfaithful to her, to him. He, she was, a, she was uh, repeatedly unfaithful. Had children out of wedlock. God said to Hosea over and over, Hosea over and over again, go, go after her, go after her, win her back. Kept loving her. And he'd go down to the, the temple where she'd become a temple prostitute and bring her home. She'd run away again. And he kept supplying her with food and clothing. She didn't even know it. And uh, Hosea uh, uh, did all of this to represent God's love for Israel and God's love for us. That's the way he treats us. He just keeps reaching out and reaching out, trying to reclaim us and, and bring us back. And finally, finally, God's judgment fell upon this, this woman. And, and apparently she, she came back. Uh, because in chapter 3, Hosea was told to go and, and show his love uh, again to this woman. But in, in verse 14 of chapter 2, the Lord says this to, uh, to Hosea about Israel, about the people of God, about us. Therefore, I'm going to lure, I'll lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. You remember the valley of Achor? That's the valley where they stoned Achan. And yet, God says that's going to be a door of hope. Now, we don't stone people today. There's another way that God has of dealing with sin. He just... Let's us go our own way and trash our lives, come to the end of ourselves. And like the, like the prodigal, when we finally end up in the pig pen, and there's, there's, there's no fur lining to the pig pen. It's just a rotten mess that we've made for ourselves. And we're, we're reduced to, to husks, eating husks, and we finally the light dawns. And we realize that we've abandoned the Father's house. And we begin to remember the fellowship of that house and the love and, it, and, and the goodness of just being there in the presence of God. And we begin to make our way back. And the Lord says to us, as, as he said to, to Israel, the door, the valley of Achor, the valley of judgment, the valley of destruction, the place where... Where the flesh was destroyed has become a, a door of hope. Now, if, if you're struggling with some sin and you're dealing with it, then God wants you to know that, that he understands. He, he experienced every temptation that we experience. He, he's, he's wonderfully patient and loving with us as we struggle our way along. But if you're holding out on God, if, if you or I have some deeply embedded, deep, deeply entrenched sin that we are not willing to bring out into the open. We're not willing to confess it and face it and judge it. And we're not willing to let our Lord begin to put it away. Then, then God will let us go to the valley of Achor. He'll take his hands off of us. 
we begin to discover that sin has become our master. There's only one way back, and that's the way of repentance, to face the sin, to confess it, to step away from it, to know by God's grace that you've been forgiven. And then God will begin to restore. He will again make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. Let's pray. These are hard words, Lord. We, We flinch from them. And yet we know this is truth. This is the other side of your character. You're a holy God. You are not at all tolerant of sin. And because you love us so much, you will not permit us to go on in our rebellion and resistance, but you will very graciously but tenaciously deal with our sin and deal with us until we're willing to confess it and put it away. And then, Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to bask in that forgiveness that comes our way to know that we are fully, totally forgiven because of the cross. That though we were running away from you, you were running apace with us. That you did not abandon us. And that all the disasters that befell us one after another were simply a, a part of your, of, of your loving care for us. Your attentiveness to us so that we cannot get away. We thank you for that. Give all of us, Father, the honesty to, to face into the sin that besets us and and to bring it out into the open, into the light, where it can be dealt with. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.